I invite you all to turn with me to Job 17. While you're turning there, I'll pray for our sermon. Lord, we do ask you now to speak, that you would speak through your inspired word, a word that we confess is often difficult for us to understand. Grant us to see uh, your son clearly uh, in this poetry, in this very emotional poetry, and we grant that you would give us strength that you would make our faith in your Son unassailable, that we would cling to him even when all hope seems lost. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Last week, we considered the peculiar faith of a suicidal, despairing saint. For many people, that is an oxymoron. How can you be suicidal and despairing and yet have faith, biblical faith, Saving faith. I thought faith was happy and idealistic. Maybe you have a very negative view. Faith makes you delusional about life's trials. And faith is fair weather. It goes away when life gets real. That was exactly Satan's accusation about Job to God. And then Job suffered so acutely that his wife encouraged him to die, maybe even encouraging his suicide. His friends, though they spoke at times profound truths, were only miserable comforters, condemning Job, making his despair more pronounced. And through it all, Job would say things like, what's the point in serving God? Yet at the end of the whole book of Job, God commends Job for speaking rightly. At the end of the day, Job had faith that coexisted with his despair. Real biblical faith doesn't mean you won't walk through the dark valleys of this world. Real faith is the way you will make it through to the other side of those valleys. Last week, we read through Job's prayer response in in chapter 16, and we saw this faith of a suicidal, despairing saint. And even in the midst of suffering that made him feel like God was being unjust to him, Job turned to God. He looked to God. I mean, half of Job's responses to his friends actually end up being prayers addressed to God. In Job 16, we saw Job pray, hoping that God would step in and be his mediator with God. Such a weird way to talk. Job felt no hope to stand before God and make any sort of case, though he knew himself to be innocent. But he knew if there was going to be any sort of resolution, he would need a mediator, a lawyer who knew all the facts. Only God had the expertise and wisdom to be able to mediate successfully for Job. And so even though Job knew that God was sovereignly behind his suffering, he turned to God as his only hope for vindication Salvation for a resolution that would satisfy his soul. He didn't have any idea what that would be. We'll see more of that today. He didn't envision some specific outcome that he was praying for. From his perspective, there was no outcome in this life, no event that could happen that would heal his broken spirit. But he still trusted the all-knowing, all-wise God to intercede on his behalf, to plead his case, And so bring about some cosmic, soul-satisfying solution. Job needed something to satisfy his soul. He didn't know what it was, but he knew God did, and so he turned to God in faith. And that drove us last week straight to the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
We ended last week by rejoicing that Jesus answered all the prayers of Job in ways that Job himself could barely will himself to hope for. God himself in the flesh has taken up the role of mediator for his people. He has become their divine cosmic lawyer. We've often considered and talked about why we need a sinless mediator, but last week we saw why we need an all-wise mediator. We need someone to argue our case in heaven who knows everything, who knows all the ins and outs of the universe and so can act as a perfectly effective lawyer. One of the primary ministries that the Bible teaches that Jesus does for his people is that he mediates for them. He prays for them even when they don't know what to pray. We often don't know what's best for us. But Jesus does. Because right now, Jesus knows every wind blowing, their directions, their interactions. He knows every leaf falling. He knows every tremor cracking the crust of the earth. He knows every rock shifting. He knows every particle and their indeterminate vibrations and states. He knows every machination and sequence of events planned by men. And he knows every thought and intention of every human heart. He knows it all and uses his infinite knowledge and wisdom to advocate for his people making sure they are taken care of and that all things ultimately work out for their good. You could never run your life so that all things work together for your good. You could never intercede for yourself to God for all the right things. God himself has to intercede for you. And God does that in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does that. Jesus Christ is the all-knowing, all-wise mediator that that Job hoped for. So now, this week we'll work a little back or backwards from what we did last week. Now we're going to start from the cross. We're going to start from the cross and then work outwards. We'll consider the rest of Job's words as he continues in chapter 17. Starting from the wonderful reality that we have in Jesus, an all-knowing, all-wise, heavenly mediator, we now consider the last of Job's laments and how his faith still breaks through. In chapter 17, Job continues his laments. He continues his rebuke of his friends. And he adds still more to the picture of what he needs from God and what Jesus will fulfill for him. So we're going to start at the same place we ended last week, and this is the same procedure. We'll read the whole chapter together, and then we'll read through it a second time, making explanatory comments as we go, because this is, at times, very difficult poetry. Through that process, we'll see an added dimension to our understanding of Jesus' ministry from the book of Job. Then we'll close with some concrete applications to the Christian reading these poems. So join with me again into Job 17, starting in verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? since you have closed their hearts to understanding. Therefore, you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. 
but you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Again, if you remember, we introduced Job last week. It's poetry, it's difficult, and at times Job is jumping around. He's jumping around in who he's talking to. He's talking to himself or his friends or to God. Some of that's maybe a little bit easier to follow in Hebrew when we have plural personal pronouns, but we're going to walk through this again. We're going to go through one more time, taking it in chunks to make sure we're following along with uh, what Job is saying in each section, each line. Back up to verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Job is reiterating that emotionally he feels done. His days are extinct. His life, it seems like it's at an end. Hence, the graveyard's ready for me. This is a theme that we see throughout the book and that he will return to in this chapter. He isn't just suffering. He's suffering with no possible way out. Right? Not just that he sees no way out currently. There is a difference to, between being in a situation where you cannot see a way out and, a di- and being in a situation where you know there is no way out. You know there is nothing that will fix this. That's where Job is. He knows it. Truly, the graveyard is ready. Not just he cannot see a way out. He cannot imagine that there possibly would be a way out. Not just my spirit is weary, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. Those words, broken, extinct, they have a finality to them. It's done, it's over. Surely there are mockers about me. My eye dwells on their provocation. Those who should have been Job's comforters in his pain are mockers. And Job cannot stop thinking about everything they are saying. That's what he means by saying his eyes dwell. He can't take his eyes off it. He can't get it out of his head. All the things they are saying are doing damage as they say them. And Job isn't able to ignore it or just let it be water off his back. You remember Job's friends were saying that Job had some, basically they were saying Job had some great secret sin that he was being punished for. That was the main gist of their argument. Really bad things only happen to really bad people. You must be really bad. But since that wasn't true of Job, their words only made Job suffer more as they accused him and they presented a theology that gave him no hope. As we saw last week in our survey, they actually make things worse. Part of Job's despairing comes as a response to the things they were saying. The speeches of his friends are very much part of the trial that he ends up having to endure from God. Then there's a shift. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. This verse is the key expression of hope in this whole section. And it adds most clearly to our picture of Christ's ministry in Job 16 and 17. So we're going to camp here for a bit. Job turns back to addressing God. he's, He's back in prayer mode. 
He asked for God to provide a pledge. That's a pledge. Well, our parallel term in verse 16 is security, right? Think collateral or bail. A pledge is a guarantee you would provide while you pay back a debt or sometimes complete a task. Uh, just like bail or, or mortgaging your house. You pay bail, which is you saying, I will give you this money as a pledge that I will return. Or you mortgage your house, you say, should I fail to pay back my debt, you get my house. We read about the Israelites having to mortgage their property when things were going poorly for them. They would put up their homes as pledges. So they failed to pay the debt or complete the service, you got their home. And ancient people did this type of thing just as much as moderns, probably more. Their society uses pledges um, more often than ours. All sorts of debts and situations you could cover by pledging something, where we probably wouldn't think of doing that, right? It wasn't always to cover a debt. Sometimes it was to guarantee some sort of uh, service. You could, you know, you might give your coat as a pledge, right? I want to borrow an ingredient from you, and I say, hey, I will share some of the soup that I make if you lend me this ingredient. Well, how do I know you're going to share some of the soup, and you're not just going to eat it uh, on your own, by, on your own time? Okay, well, you can have my coat. You hold on to my coat, and that's my pledge that you, I will share this soup with you. And if not, you, you get to keep my coat. Pledges were such a ubiquitous part of their society that the book of Proverbs spends a lot of time talking about them. If you've read through Proverbs recently, you hear them talking about pledges a lot. And mostly, Proverbs warns against putting up pledges for strangers, right? Because if they fail to pay back the debt, you are the one who loses your pledge. Proverbs says it is wisdom not to pledge for someone that you don't believe in, right? that you don't know. Don't pledge for someone you don't believe in. Don't pledge for someone you don't know. You could also make more drastic pledges, Reuben pledged himself when the sons of Jacob tried to convince Jacob to let them take Benjamin with them to Egypt. He says, I'll guarantee his safety with the promise of my life. Pledging yourself was a way of betting your life. The idea that if this fails, you either get me in servitude or, or you get to kill me. That was the rhetoric for Reuben. I, I'll die if this, if this fails. So doubly serious then is the warning from Proverbs because if you pledge your life for someone in some way, either to death or more commonly to some form of service, and then they fail to pay back the debt, they fail to complete the promise, your life was on the hook for them. So the act of making a pledge for yourself is a form of a promise, right? The act of making a pledge for someone else was a way of lending your support, both materially and, and emotionally. By making a pledge for someone else, you were taking their side. You're taking responsibility for them until X happened. They paid back their debt. They rendered their service. The way you took responsibility was you provided something that secured their release or gave them time to pay back their debt. So someone providing a pledge for something else, pledges cost you something, at least in the short term. And you had to have some belief in the person you were pledging for, some affection, some concern. If you were pledging something while they repaid a debt, it means you were willing to risk something or even go without your pledge for their sake while they worked to fulfill their debt. And generally speaking, if you were pledging bail, because that happened, if you were pledging for someone in, in a legal situation, it meant that you believed not just that they would return, right? Like today, that's mostly what bail is, right? Bail, you get to go out from jail and you come back. But no, if you, back then, if you were pledging uh, in, in a legal situation, it was because you believed ultimately in their innocence, right? Because if they were guilty, then the pledge would be the first part of paying back whatever damages would be assessed, and you would also still be on the hook. For you to pledge for them and say, I'm pledging on their behalf, you're saying, I'm, I'm willing to cover if they get 
found guilty. I believe in their innocence. I'll cover anything that happens if they're guilty. So you pledge is a serious thing. Here Job wants God to provide a pledge. That's what he asks, provide a pledge. And given the divine court imagery used throughout the book, probably this specific idea image in mind is that legal pledge. The bail given that allows Job some measure of freedom and that usually would only be paid if you believed that the person would be vindicated. And you think about that image of faith. Job is asking God to take his side, put up bail for him until he is vindicated in the heavenly court. Job's trust in God, despite his pain and despairing and his, at times, suicidal ideation, is strong enough that he would ask God to, metaphorically speaking, risk himself for Job. That, that's what he's asking. That, that's what he's praying. Please, God, care enough about me and this situation to involve yourself. To get skin in this game. As Job laments, none of his friends would be willing to pledge for him since they believe that he is a guilty sinner. He deserves what he's suffering. Hence Job's reasoning there in the verse. Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, no one will put up security for me. So I'm asking you, God. You, God, please put up security for me. What what the ESV translates it idiomatically has put up security for me is a phrase that means to to clasp hands together job is saying no one will join hands with me no one will lock arms with me in this no one will take my side no one wants to identify with me so i'm asking you god take my hand god take my side help me up help get me through this don't just argue my case actually stand with me Involve yourself personally with me in the present until my case is decided. And remember, this this is a a, a weird way to talk, right? Because in the imagery, who would God be giving this pledge to? Whom would God be taking Job's hand to help him stand before? Or who has custody of Job that he needs freeing? The answer is God himself. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Please provide my heavenly bail to yourself. Provide what you require for my vindication. Even as you afflict me, please identify with me. Job's prayer is a desperate hope, but a firm hope. He doesn't have any idea, probably, what a heavenly pledge to God might be. He has no particular imagination about what would satisfy God as a pledge, but he knows he cannot supply it, and so he asks God to provide it. I mean, notice the the reason that no one will lock arms with Job in the text. Because God has closed his friends' hearts to understanding. Job acknowledges God's sovereignty, his control, even over the stupid theologizing of his miserable comforter friends. And Job has repeatedly acknowledged God's sovereignty over the entire situation of his suffering. And so bereft of any options, because of God's hand upon him, Job turns to God alone to take his side, to provide a pledge. God is the judge in the courtroom, and once again, Job appeals to God to provide in the heavenly court what Job himself cannot. Just as Job asked for God to be his heavenly mediator with God, what a weird way to talk. So now Job asks for God to provide his bail to God. Job doesn't understand why what is happening is happening, but he asks God to both take his side and to stand with him through the whole process and get him through it. No one will join hands with Job. No one will wager on Job's innocence. No one will guarantee Job's freedom. God himself has eliminated any place for Job to turn. 
But Job still trusts God to fill that gap. That's the difference between a mediator and someone giving a pledge, right? That's what this verse is adding to the idea of what Job needs from God. He needs a heavenly mediator, right? We saw last week. He needs a lawyer. But he also needs someone who's willing to provide security payment to pledge himself for Job. Someone to identify with him in his suffering. A mediator doesn't necessarily risk anything themselves. Someone putting up a pledge does. Job asks God not just to be his mediator, but to provide his pledge. Job is asking God to give him some guarantee that personally involves God, and thus guarantees Job's triumph, given his innocence. Give me some sort of heavenly guarantee that I will be vindicated in the heavenly realm, that you are with me. Job asked God to give himself, to give God a heavenly payment that would satisfy himself as judge and that would personally involve himself in Job's case as friend. Again, it's it's such an odd way to pray and think if you don't understand God's sovereignty, biblical faith, and Jesus Christ. Jesus is the literal answer to all of Job's prayers. Not only is Jesus a divine mediator, God acting as lawyer on your behalf, but he puts up bail for you. He pays the cost to guarantee your freedom. He involves himself personally in the transaction of your salvation. That's the the Pauline logic that we read last week in Romans in connection with Job. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point is, God has given a pledge that guarantees the consummation of our salvation, our ultimate deliverance from the brokenness of this world. He gave the life of his son in pledge. It's yet another way of how the Bible talks about what Jesus accomplished by his death. He paid for our sins. God provided a means of salvation that should existentially comfort us, that he will never abandon us. He pledged his own son for our sake. God has personally staked in our salvation. God has everything to Job. Even in his grief, God is the one who has to defend him. God is the one who has to lock arms with him and take his side. And Jesus comes and fulfills all that and more. God the Son is not only the mediator and the pledge provider. He is the pledge himself. God the Son pledges his own life for the life of his people. God doesn't just pledge his life as a hypothetical. God pledges his life as the actual payment. Jesus died to secure our release in the heavenly court. He died to secure our status of innocent. That's that's different than the way pledges normally work. Jesus' death was more than what Job envisions and asks for here. We don't know how much Job understood, and often it's clear that he didn't understand that much, but Job had biblical faith and hope. And now we understand exactly just how wonderful it is that God is indeed willing to identify with us. He identifies with us even in our sin. God is greater than Job's friends who view him as guilty and therefore won't help. God knows we are guilty. And he pays a pledge that is so valuable it secures our release regardless. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actually guilty in the heavenly court, Jesus laid down his life as a payment, as an exchange. He literally died the death we deserved. He bore the wrath that our sin deserves, and he stands with us so that we can be counted in him. 
his righteous life, as we say, credited to our account. Which means when God the Father looks at Christ, Christ says of his people, they're with me. And so God counts all of Jesus' righteousness and goodness as if it were the people's, because now it is by virtue of their connection to Jesus. To be connected to Jesus by faith means that God will treat you as if you were good and pure and as holy as Jesus was. Right? Do, you, do you understand the, the difference, how Jesus went above and beyond? Believer, Jesus didn't just pay a penalty for you, pay a pledge for you because you were innocent in the divine court. You are innocent in the divine court because Jesus paid a pledge for you. We continue. Job goes on. He who informs against his friends, this is a pretty abrupt shift. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. Here, at least it seems by form, that Job is probably quoting a proverb that would be familiar. It's not in the book of Proverbs, but a proverb that would be familiar to his friends. This is an ironic way of throwing the accusations of his friends back at them. The point of the proverb is the one who betrays a friend in order to benefit, right, informing against a friend in order to get the property they would lose, will ultimately fail. They'll ultimately fall. The eyes of his children will fail means that his children will die, his line will be cut off. Job's friends weren't literally uh, doing this, but Job is warning them. You believe in in retribution theology so much? Well, be careful of the retribution that will come your way for how you are betraying me. We have Proverbs that talk about what happens to friends like you. Job is accusing them of betrayal with their bad comfort, their poor theology. He goes on, he has made me a byword of the people's God. God has made me a byword of the people's. I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation and all my members are like a shadow. Again, Job emphasizes the plight of his current state. To be a byword is to be a proverbial example. People have begun to look at Job as an example par excellence of what happens to sinners. Like, you want to know what happens to sinners? Job, he's, he's the example. They look on him with disgust and embarrassment. They spit at him. Job is physically suffering for this. It's likely he means to describe real physical distress that he's suffering, at least in part. Whether he means his eyesight has grown weak or that his vision metaphorically has grown dim so that he cannot see a way out, it is obvious from the whole book that his body was physically weak, a shadow of once he, what he once was. And then Job says, The upright are appalled at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Here Job is referencing the truly upright. He is describing how someone who is actually upright, innocent, and godly would react to how the people were treating him. The people are shaking their heads at Job, wagging their fingers, viewing him as the ultimate example of a sinner. Even his friends have joined in. And Job is saying, an actually upright person would be disgusted with how you are treating me. They would rise up against you and oppose you. And yet the righteous holds to his way. He who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Here Job is referring to himself. He is the righteous one, the one who is actually in the right. And despite all the words and attacks, the smears and isolation, he is not backing down from his position. He knows he is innocent. He knows his hands are clean. And despite how the cruel comforts of his friends might have worn him down, Job holds fast to his declaration of innocence. The reference to growing stronger does not just mean growing more convinced and firm about his position, but also looks in faith to eventual triumph because of his clean hands. 
He, he still has that faith break through. He trusts, given his hope for a divine pledge, given his hope for a divine mediator, that he will be vindicated and rescued. He turns back to his friends. But you, you all, come on again, all of you. I shall not find a wise man among you. In contrast to his own righteousness, Job invites his friends to continue talking and to continue to prove their own foolishness with their incorrect theologizing and application. Then he turns to his final lament. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart broken off. Over. Job is talking about how this situation has taken all joy from his life and all hope in the now. From just an earthly perspective, he has no hope. In contrast with how he hopes in God. Job's point is that, that all he had from an earthly perspective, what he has from an earthly perspective, he has nothing. None of his plans for life are still viable. His days are in the past, though he still lives. He has no future in his mind. He has no desires of the heart that he can envision still being viable. It's all gone. No one would choose to be in Job's situation, even knowing the ultimately good outcome. No one would choose to suffer so much that they can see no earthly way out, that they cannot, cannot imagine a possible good, even a remotely improbable miracle. Can't even imagine it. Yet consider again, how God answers in Jesus. Not only does Jesus identify with us, Jesus chose to undergo all this for us. In pledging his own life, Jesus put himself in the position of Job. Job was a relatively righteous sufferer, but Jesus was a perfectly righteous sufferer. Jesus knew he was in the right. He never sinned, and he knew it, and he knew that he would be abandoned by all men, that he would be rejected and treated as a criminal by people he had served, and even more than that, he knew he would experience the wrath of God the Father, alienation from God the Father that men deserved for their sin. When you read Job's suffering, you read at how, how bleak things are for him. You remember that Jesus Christ chose to enter into that for you. Jesus put himself willingly in the position of Job, but even worse, he did that willingly, knowingly, in order to identify with his people in their sin. He pledged his life for you. To secure your salvation. Then the next verse, maybe the most difficult line in terms of understanding what Job's getting at. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. In the line, it does confuse a lot of people. Here, here's what I think Job is getting at based on the, the context. Darkness in Job is mostly the, the usual metaphorical association. Darkness is gloom. Darkness is the grave. As we see in the immediately following verse, right? That's darkness. That's our first clue. In contrast, light is life and hope. And they, at the beginning of this verse, they're his friends, right? They're the rest of the mockers in his life. They make night into day. Job is saying that the only friends, his, the only hope his friends are giving him is the grave. He's saying that their counsel, their words, make night into day, meaning make death his only hope. In other words, if everything you say is true, then all I have to look forward to is death. You're making it so that death is my only hope, that night is the only day. As you, we see throughout the book, part of Job's suicidal despair is brought on not just by his situation, but also by the words and counsel of his friends. 
They say Job needs to repent and then things will go well for him. Job says he's innocent. If Job needs to repent to be delivered and he has nothing to repent of, then there's no way for him to be delivered. The grave becomes his only hope. The night is his only day. The darkness is his only light. In the final verses, Job continues the same self-counsel based on his hope from God in chapter 16 in response to all this. He says, closing out the chapter, if I hope for Sheol as my house, the grave, right? Sheol, the grave. If I hope for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Job is asking himself these rhetorical questions. This is a way of counteracting, right? His friends make it so the grave seems to be his only hope. Death, the end, nothingness. And he's, he has to ask himself, is that really true? And he, he himself, earlier in the book, has articulated a desire to make his bed in darkness. He's articulated a desire at many points to die. He expressed his desire to go into the pit, to have only the worm for company. And now he asks himself rhetorically, if he does indeed die, if he does indeed go into the darkness in order to escape his pain, will his hope go with him? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. No, no, it won't. Now, Job isn't talking about dying and having you know, hope for life after death, right? The death that Job is envisioning here that he's talking about is, is giving up, right? It's, it's nothingness, atheistic hopelessness, giving up totally on life. Job knows that to just give up Give in would actually be abandoning his hope in God. He isn't saying that there has to be a resolution in this life, but he is counseling himself that if he takes his own life, if he truly views death as his only hope, then he is giving up on any sort of hope in God. He is exhorting himself to cling to his hope, and that means to continue to endure his pain, right? To cling to his hope that God will provide a pledge for him and will mediate for him. He is willing himself, counseling himself, to endure the pain and continue to hope in God. He doesn't know how or when this will work out in justice. And at times there are hints in the book that he does in fact look for something beyond this life. But his point in these verses with these questions is not that he needs a resolution before he dies, but his point is that he cannot die without hope for that would truly be the end. His question, shall we descend together into the dust? It assumes no is the answer. No, no we won't because that would be failing ultimately to trust God. And I'm not ready to abandon my hope in him. Job knew, however dimly he saw, that God was the type of God who would be and would prove faithfully to be God with us. God would draw near to his people and pledge himself and mediate for them. And Job would know vindication in this universe somehow. Like all the Old Testament saints, Job trusted in Christ with a dim view, knowing that God would do something like Jesus. Maybe not fully understanding, but he knew. He knew God would be God with us. But he never, never fully understood just how wonderful Jesus would turn out to be. We have that vantage point, that blessing that Job didn't, to be able to look back on the, the revelation of God's fullness in Christ. And so now, in, in light of, of that revelation of Jesus and in light of Job's prayers in both 16 and 17, we'll close with four summary applications. Four summary applications from the life and prayers of Job, in, at least in chapter 16 and 17. Number one, brothers and sisters, have confidence in Christ. 
Job appealed to God even as he suffered and saw no way out. None. He hoped for God to perform a mediatorial role, to lock arms with him and involve himself personally. And we know, we know that God has done that in Jesus. How much more can we now pray to God, being able to look back on the life of Christ? How much more bite can our prayers have? Job could only look forward and see shadows. We have the substance. We have the real deal. We have all the encouragement necessary to pray and to pray boldly, to appeal. Because of Christ, we have that heavenly status of innocent, and we can pray on that basis. We can pray on the basis of one who is innocent in Christ. We can have confidence to come before the throne. You can ask God hard things in prayer because you know Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. You can ask God marvelous things because you know that Jesus is interceding on your behalf, knowing all the details that you don't. So even when your prayers are short-sighted and imperfect, you have the confidence that someone is praying for you whose prayers are never short-sighted and are always perfect. Number two, don't be a mocker. Job's friends used much scripture. They spoke with apparent concern for the justice and glory of God. And yet Job calls them godless. And God says they did not speak what was right concerning him. They made Job wish for death. They made night into day. Don't be like that. Don't take the word of God and use it to turn someone's night into day. To make someone wish they were dead. When people are in the throes of profound suffering, that isn't the time to beat them over the head with their sins, or really what often is the case with the ways that they aren't like you. That's often our temptation. Oh, how often we think if you were just like me, your lives would be a little bit better. Something goes wrong, right? Someone else is, someone's having problems with their children, and we think, oh, if only you homeschooled like me, serves you right. Or we think, oh, if only you weren't so needlessly strict and conservative at home. You brought this on yourself. Serves you right. Don't do that. Don't make yourself an enemy of someone that Jesus Christ is advocating for in heaven right now. You don't want to be on the opposite side of Jesus. You want to be on Jesus' side. And if someone is a believer, then God is for them and will work through their sufferings for their good ultimately. Even when they are suffering, for something that is a fault of their own. So when your brother or sister suffers, come alongside them and encourage them with the hope of their heavenly mediator and pledge. Encourage them to turn to God in prayer. Pray for them when they don't have the strength to pray and remind them that Jesus prays for them in ways neither of you could ever hope to and his prayers are always effective. Number three. Just because all suffering isn't necessarily a judgment does not mean that judgment is not coming. In fact, all of Job's appeals and prayers assume there is a divine judgment coming. Verse 4, Job says, You have closed their eyes to understanding, therefore they will not triumph. In other words, because they are wrong, they will be judged. Job is confident. Even as he doesn't understand, he's confident there will be justice. Job's friends would suffer judgment absent forgiveness. At the end of the book, Job has to make atonement for them. Job trusted that God would bring cosmic, divine justice in the end, even though he couldn't imagine how it would all shake out. Trust that God is serious about that. 
Job was right to wait on God and to fear God's justice. God will make sense of all the suffering in this universe. He will satisfy the souls of his saints. And in order to do that, there, need, there has to be divine retributive judgment. If you are not innocent in Christ, then you are guilty in your sins. If Jesus does not represent you in court, if he has not paid a pledge for you, then you will be found guilty and you will face the wrath of God. You will experience death without relief and the full horrors of hell. So take that judgment seriously because God takes seriously his commitment to his people. Number four, exercise faith in your pain. Faith is gritty and realistic. Faith doesn't pretend that everything is okay, nor is faith only for the times when everything is okay. Faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes means counseling yourself with hard truths. Joe had to tell himself, had to ask himself biting rhetorical questions. He had to tell himself that suicide and death wasn't the answer because that's what he felt. That's what he wanted. He had to ask himself questions like in 15, verses 15 through 16 to encourage himself to hope for what he could not see. Now, I don't know what your futures hold, but it is likely that many of you in this room will have either felt like Job or one day you will feel like Job, right? I'm not talking about just you're going to suffer, you're going to feel pain and sadness. I'm talking you're going to really feel like Job. Some of you someday might feel like your only hope is the night of death. The only light at the end of your tunnel is darkness and gloom. Someday you may find yourself feeling like it would be better to make the pit your home. And in those moments, you will have to will yourself to ask yourself, would that really solve anything? Would just an escape from pain solve anything? We need more than just relief from pain. We need meaning from pain. Only the hope for a divine mediator and ultimate justice gives any meaning to our pain. We need justice. We need cosmic justice. And God has pledged himself to it. Real faith sometimes feels like it is all for nothing but still looks to Jesus Christ for cosmic justice because we know that God has invested himself personally in our world and in the salvation of his people. You will find yourself needing to cling to Christ because only Christ could give you any sort of solution. C.S. Lewis published the Screwtape Letters in 1942. Many of you may have read it before. I, for my money, arguably his best work. It's a novel which is ostensibly a collection of letters that a senior devil, a senior demon, has written to a junior devil, instructing him in all the ways of evil and how to tempt a soul. It is a penetrating glimpse into the depravity of man and the world, and, and one of the most powerful passages comes when the junior devil, named Wormwood, seems to get excited that he's gotten his target to a valley of despair and suffering. But his uncle writes a sharp rebuke. Remember, this is from the perspective of demons, so the enemy is God. Uh, uncle writes, the prayers offered in a state of dryness are those which please our enemy, God, best. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and then still obeys. Brothers and sisters, one day you are going to need Job 16 and 17 in your pocket. You are going to need to be able to pray, Oh Jesus, my spirit is broken. 
My days are extinct. My eyes has grown dim. All my members are like a shadow. My days are past. My plans are broken off. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that Jesus is listening to that prayer and he is doing something about it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your providence in Job's life. We thank you for what you have done for us in that. We thank you for the clear revelation of our need for a pledge with you, for you to provide it, for our need for a heavenly mediator, for you to mediate for us, and we thank you for fulfilling that need in your son Jesus. Now we do ask that you would grant us faith and confidence in him to pray even when we don't know what to pray, to trust you even when we can't see a way out, to believe in your son's faithfulness, to recognize your stake in the salvation and vindication of your people. Encourage us when we need to be encouraged. Strengthen us when we need to be strengthened. Grant us to endure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.